Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we, we have a Savior, and He is Christ the Lord, and He has saved us. He has given His life for us that we might have salvation. What a joy fills our hearts this morning to rehearse that all over again to each other and to, to encourage each other with this truth that we have a Savior. He has rescued us. We live with abundant life. We live forgiven of our sins. Our guilt is gone. Our, our sins are charged to us no more. You have loved us and continue to love us, and nothing can separate us from that love. And so, our Father, we are here this morning to rejoice and to praise you, to lift up your name in exaltation, and to thank you for everything that you've done for us. And to remind ourselves that no matter what happens in our lives, we have a God who loves us, who has given his son for us, who has saved us, who is Lord of our life, who is Lord over this universe, and is coming to take us to be with himself forever one day. And we praise you, and we thank you, and we lift up our voices to you, O God, in our hearts. Would you now strengthen our hearts with your truth? The truth of your word, I pray in Jesus' name, and for his sake, amen. Philip Yancey, in his book, Where is God When It Hurts, writes and begins his book this way. Several years ago, I heard a frantic call for help from close friends, John and Claudia Claxton. They were newlyweds in their early 20s, beginning life together in the Midwest. I had never seen such love, I'd never seen love affect anyone as thoroughly as it had affected John Claxton. In two years of engagement to Claudia, he had changed from a cold, hard cynic into an optimist intent on enjoying the adventure of marriage. The letter I received from John troubled me as soon as I opened it. Errors and scratches marred his usually neat handwriting. He explained, excuse my writing. I guess it shows how I'm fumbling for words. I don't know what to say. The Claxton's young marriage had run into a roadblock um, far bigger than both of them. Claudia had contracted Hodgkin's disease, cancer of the lymph glands, and had been given only a 50% chance to live. Within a week, surgeons had cut her from, the, from armpit to belly and removed every visible trace of the disease. She was left stunned and weak, lying in a hospital bed. At the time, John was working as a chaplain's assistant in a local hospital. His compassion for other patients dipped dangerously. In some ways, he told me, I could understand better what other patients were undergoing, but I didn't care anymore. I only cared about Claudia. I wanted to scream at them, stop that sniveling, you idiots. You think you've got problems? My wife may be dying right now. Though both John and Claudia were strong Christians, anger against God surged up. Anger against a partner they loved who had turned on them. God, why us, they cried. Have you teasingly doled out one scant year of marriage to set us up for this? Cobalt treatments caused Claudia's body to deteriorate. Beauty fled her. She was constantly tired. Her skin turned dark. 
Her hair fell out, and her throat was always swollen and raw. She regurgitated nearly everything she ate. For a time, doctors suspended treatment because her throat had become so swollen she couldn't swallow. Each day, Claudia would think about God and about her suffering, especially in the treatment room. In that chill steel room, she would be laid on flat, out flat on a table, naked, where she would listen to the whir and click of machinery bombarding her with visible, invisible particles. Each day of the radiation aged her body by months. At first, Claudia had expected that Christian visitors would console and comfort her, but their voices were too confusing. A deacon from church solemnly told her to reflect on what God was trying to teach her. Surely there's something in your life which is displeasing to God, he said. He must have stepped out of his will somewhere. These things don't just happen. What is God telling you? A lady came, a scatterbrained, plump widow, who saw her calling as a professional cheerleader to the sick. She brought flowers, sang hymns, and quoted happy psalms about running brooks and mountains clapping their hands. Whenever Claudia's illness was mentioned, this lady quickly changed the subject. Her approach was to drive out the suffering with her cheer and goodwill. But after she left, the flowers faded, the hymns seemed dissonant and muted, and Claudia remained to face another day of pain. Another lady dropped by who had faithfully watched Oral Roberts, Catherine Coleman, and the 700 Club over the years. She told Claudia that healing was the only escape. Sickness is never God's will, she insisted. The Bible says as much. It's the devil's work. Perhaps the most spiritual lady in Claudia's church came to read aloud books about praising God for everything. Claudia, you need to come to the place where you can say, God, I love you for making me suffer like this. It is your will. You know the best for me, and I just praise you for loving me enough to allow me to experience this. In all things, including this, I give thanks. As she pondered the words, Claudia's mind filled with ferocious, gruesome vision, visions of God. She imagined a figure in the shape of a troll, big as the universe, who delighted in squeezing helpless humans between his fingernails, pulverizing them with his fists, dashing them against sharp stones. The figure would keep torturing these humans until they cried out, God, I love you for doing this to me. The idea repulsed Claudia. She could not worship or love such a God. Yet another visit visitor, Claudia's pastor, made her feel she was on a select mission. He told her, you, Claudia, can participate in Christ's sufferings. You've been appointed to suffer for him, and he will reward you. God chose you because of your great strength and integrity, just as he chose Job. And he is using you as an example. The faith of others may increase because of your response. And so the book continues. You know, we want to talk about the subject of suffering, which has no doubt touched most of the lives who are here today in one form or another. And one thing I want to be very guarded against is over-intellectualizing the matter of suffering today. It's not really a great topic for apologetics, although it is necessary for us to, to do that. I, I don't want to philosophize today, and I, I don't want to over-theologize either. Real people have real hurts and need something that touches the heart, not just the head. And so I hope to offer you as best I can truth 
but truth with love, truth in love. Uh, too often we're ready to regurgitate to one another the truth, but maybe not so much packaged in love, because regularly we don't know what to say to one another when suffering comes, and so we hope to answer some sort of theological platitude of truth that we hope will get someone by, but we're talking about real hurt and real pain, and, and so today, I, as much as this is an apologetic, I really want to share with you, uh, as best I can, something that will help. Why do we suffer is the question this morning. It's on the line. You know, the question of suffering is another gigantic intellectual and emotional obstacle for many people, especially concerning a good God. Now, those without God are left with only one question, I hope we understand, and that question is why. And why is a most unhelpful question. Why doesn't answer anything? Why doesn't help anything, especially if it can't change? Why just sits there causing more agony. We have to do better than that. And uh, I want to uh, share with you that, um, quite honestly, those who want to go at life without God will suffer for that now and forever. That's the simple truth. But what about the suffering? As, as we understand, last week we looked at how, does, how do we explain evil in our wor- world and a good God well, the flip side of that this morning is how do we explain suffering in the world in a good God? And I, I want to submit to you right at the very front end that a good God is the only way we can explain suffering in our world. And I hope to show you that. There have been many attempts by people who don't know God to try and explain suffering or try and justify it or try and help people get through life with it. And I, I want to share with you a few of those thoughts so at least you understand what you're facing in the culture, the ideas that people have. From his book, Reasons to Believe, R.C. Sproul gives a number of explanations that are out there. And I want to share them quickly with you. One of them, the first of them is that suffering isn't real. Uh, this is an ancient philosophy, an ancient idea that grows out of a, a sect of uh, people called the Dostics uh, from a form of Gnosticism. The idea is that um, suffering just isn't real. It's, it's, in, your, it's in your mind that, that physical isn't real, and so therefore you can shut that out of your mind, and, 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 and there's no healing, just denying. It's about denial. Um, Christian science is a strong proponent of that which is neither Christian nor science, but it actually uh, proposes that, that how you are feeling uh, can disappear if you just don't believe it's so. Well, none of us are really, who've suffered any, would suggest that our suffering or our physical illness or whatever it is isn't real. It's real. There's others who say that suffering can be managed by mental strength. Trouble and pain is a matter of fate. There's nothing we can do about that. The external world is a, is, is a, a mystery and is, we, are, we are under the, the forces of fate. But how suffering is managed is a matter of our choice. And uh, so this is the, the Stoics, Stoics uh, philosophically. Uh, they were able to, uh, so they claim, to immunize themselves from perturbability. Uh, the idea can't control anything external, but we can take charge of our mental attitude. And by the way, that's repackaged in, in many ways in our culture, in the modern self-help teachings. Um, in fact, we see it on those big posters, you know. Stay calm. Trust in the Bruins. 
That doesn't really help, does it? I couldn't say the Leafs because that just gives you more suffering. <laughs> Buddhism tries that, the meditation, the idea, yoga, uh, yoga and its uh, uh, practice of centering mind over matter. Well, how's that working for you? There's a third idea. Suffering can be counteracted by pleasure. This is very popular in our culture. This is the hedonistic approach of the Epicureans. Uh, as suffering increases, all you do is simply increase your intake of pleasure. It's the escapist idea. If you're really suffering, just get ripped and drunk. J- just take therapeutic, uh, pharmacological uh, um, escape ideas. Balance suffering with pleasure. It's immensely popular. And, and you can imagine why it would be. If you have no explanation for suffering, if you have only the question why, then let's try to bury suffering, counteract it with pleasure. There's a fourth idea, and that is that suffering is just another proof of the absurdity of life. That there is no rhyme or reason to suffering. Life is simply meaningless. Suffering doesn't make any sense. So just embrace the total meaningless of life. It's that um, old Jewish proverb that I use regularly on my children when they're whining. Kids, life is tough, and then you die. It's one of my finer compassionate moments as a father. Tim, you really like that, I'm sure. It's very gripping. My children appear emotionally unbalanced to you. You'll understand why. There are times when I get a Moses feeling in my life. I just can't take this whining anymore. You know what I'm saying? So life is tough, and then you die. So that'll take care of any counselors or counseling opportunities in my office. <laughs> go, go see Pastor Ken and Pastor Calvin. I don't think they use this proverb. But the idea is suffering has no end until someone puts you out of your misery. This is uh, absolutely embraced by our uh, euthanistic culture. When suffering gets too tough, would someone just put a bullet in my head? Because life doesn't matter anyway. Everything's meaningless. Suffering especially is meaningless. That explains sort of our adrenaline-driven culture, living reckless. Why not? Be better if you die. And so that's the ideas that the world has. But there is an explanation to suffering, and I wish to share it with you. And that is this, that suffering exists because sin exists and is proof of a good God. Suffering has meaning. Everywhere throughout the scripture, that's what we find. Suffering exists because God has been rejected. It's something that we have to grab hold of and understand because there is a perfect way of no suffering. Then the flip side of that, that there exists the possibility of choosing an imperfect way which will bring suffering. It is the explanation of suffering is, does explain the fact that there is a good God unless a person comprehends the nature and reality and impact of sin There is no rhyme or reason to suffering and no solution and no resolution. And so um, this morning, for these few moments, I want to move past the question why. 
we as God's people who understand and know about sin and God and all of that, we, we are past the question why. The question why is of no value to us whatsoever. We already know why. Sin, because suffering exists because sin exists. And it's already been settled. Why does it matter? It can't help. It would only make things worse because things can't be changed necessarily. So suffering, by the way, doesn't need to face lectures. The one thing I have learned over the years is that those people who are deeply suffering don't need to have another lecture. They need help. And God, in His Word, offers help. God explains to us the reality of suffering. And what we need to ask, the questions that we need to ask are not why, that's settled. It's what. What do I do with suffering? What do I do uh, about those who I love who are suffering around me? And more importantly, I suppose, the question of who that gives meaning and comfort to suffering. And so I want to share a few uh, ideas under this whole matter of suffering. Suffering exists, first of all, because sin exists and because a good God has been rejected. Let's understand one thing. If you choose to sin, you are choosing to suffer. If you choose to sin, you are choosing to suffer. Now, sometimes our suffering and our pain and our agony is a direct result of our sinfulness. It's a consequence of our sinfulness. In fact, in the scriptures, in the, in the book of Proverbs, and, and, and the whole concept of, of suffering is predicated on the fact that sin exists, that people have chosen to reject God. But in, in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 22, listen to this. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. So there is regularly throughout the scripture, the simple reality that if you choose to sin, you are choosing to suffer. There will be consequences always to sin. But regularly, regularly we are suffering not because of a direct consequence of a direct sin, but as collateral damage of living in a fallen, broken world. That when Adam and Eve chose to reject God, when they chose to sin against God, all of creation, the creation that had been declared good, in fact declared very good about, by God, fell into the, the damage of sin, the fallenness, the brokenness. And so the universe we live in is, is fallen and broken. Our bodies are broken. The, the, the natural world around us is broken. And regularly we are casualties of collateral damage because of a broken universe that we live in. We regularly want to run to the we want regularly want to run to some sort of explanation for suffering and pain, and we look at one another, and often the first place we want to go is what did they do wrong? They must have done something wrong. They must be out of step with God. In fact, the disciples, when they encountered a blind man, if you remember in John chapter 9, their first reaction, and they articulated it to Jesus, was to say this: What caused his blindness? Were his parents sinful or was he sinful? That was their first reaction. 
Because there always has to be a cause and a direct, a, a, a cause and direct effect. And Jesus, you remember what he said to them? Their parents, this blindness was not because of the sin of their parents or because of the sin of the blind man, but rather that the Lord might be glorified in his life. And so regularly, and what we most often have to face is the fact that we are suffering because of the collateral reality of living in a broken universe. That's why why is already answered. Much of the suffering by us is by virtue of living in a universe where everything is fallen, broken, and not working properly. That's why in the scriptures, Paul, the apostle Paul writes that all of creation itself, listen, when, when God spoke the universe into existence and spoke his good creation into existence, it didn't include tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes, all kinds of things that damage and cause suffering and cause death and destruction. It was when creation fell because of sin that all of those things happened. That's why the Apostle Paul said in writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, 20 through 22, don't you understand that he says all of creation is groaning in birth pangs, waiting, awaiting for the sons of God to be revealed, that creation itself might be liberated from the curse of sin. And we live in this world. We live in this broken world. Suffering exists because sin exists and because a, God, a good God has been rejected. But also, suffering forces us to settle up with God, who he is to us in a way that ease never requires. Suffering chases us to the right question, the question of who God really is. And it's in those times of pain and suffering and persecution that God deepens our relationship with him in a variety of ways. I want to take a few moments at this particular spot, but if you remember the, the great classic of, of Job's story, when Job, this righteous man, if you have never read the story of Job, it's necessary for you to read this, to understand the nature of suffering and God's response to suffering and what it all means. But Job was a righteous man. He was a, he was a man who feared God and served God and prayed and called out to God and walked righteously before God. The explanation, the description of that is right in the scriptures by God himself. He would pray for his family. He was an outstanding priest of his family. He would pray for his children every day in the event that they had sinned before God. He would lift up prayers before God on behalf of his family. But one day, God allowed suffering to touch his life in horrific ways. And so Job was, was surrounded by a number of friends who weren't all that helpful to him. They were the kind of friends that many of us have encountered in our lives. There must be an explanation for why this difficult time has come upon you, Job, because these kind of things don't happen for nothing. Um, bad things don't happen to good people, Job. We all know that's not true. Bad things always happen to good people. But this is how they explain things to Job. And then eventually Job's heart was wondering and questioning as well. And, and we get to, by the time we get to Job chapter 38, God has had enough of all the human descriptions to explain the vastness and the mystery of God. 
And God calls Job to trial and says, who is this that darkens my presence with their counsel? You don't know anything, Job. You don't know anything about this universe. Where were you when I flung the mountains into existence or when I scooped out the bottom of the ocean so that the seas would roll off the land? Where were you when I put the animals in their places? Where were you, Job, when I breathed life into them? Where were you? Tell me. Explain to me. You tell me how to create a universe like this. And after Job has heard this amazing diatribe by God, He declares in chapter 42 at the very end, he says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I knew nothing, God. I had heard of you. I'd I'd heard stories about you. I'd, 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 I'd understood theological things about you, but I knew nothing about you. But when suffering came my way, now, now I've seen you, oh God. It's in those times of suffering that we are forced to settle up with God, who he is to us in a way that ease never requires. It clarifies our priorities. We've had no idea. We have no idea about God until he deepens us through the the, the, the uh, deep waters of life. We learn what really matters and we stop sweating trivia. It forces us to live our lives in a deepened way. It forces us in suffering to face the authenticity of our faith. One of the disciples, Peter, wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. All kinds of trials have come so that reasoned so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine. Proved to who? To God? He already knows if your faith is genuine or not. It's in these trials and in these suffering times and in this persecution that we come to realize whether or not our faith in God is real or if it only lasted while God was dishing out the good things. It proves to be genuine, and there's nothing more liberating in your life than coming to that place in your life where you know for certain that your faith in Jesus Christ is unshakable because you know who he is, you believe who he is, he is who he says he is, and he's settled in your heart, and it's been settled in your heart in the most difficult of times. And there's something incredibly powerful and liberating about that. And he goes on to say, of course, in that very same moment in that letter, Peter says, because in all of this, uh, in all of this, what God builds into our lives and our faith being genuine, it gives us this amazing confidence to bring praise and honor and glory in the appearance of Christ. We aren't worried about Christ appearing. We can't wait for him to appear because our faith is settled. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Christ's ability to hold us in the face of horrible trials and resistance parades his great worth and value and glory in front of us, the very forefront of our hearts. One of, um, one of our partners in ministry in a very difficult place to serve sent me a, 
a YouTube link to our, our, our faithful brothers and sisters who are suffering in, in uh, persecuted areas. And I want to show you right now a video clip of a praise and prayer service in Egypt where Christians are praising and praying and, and under great deal of persecution. I want to show you a Friday night prayer and praise time in a congregation of 20,000 Christians in Cairo, some of which you've invested in because some of their leaders I had the opportunity to train. I want you to see them praising the Lord on a Friday night, call to prayer and praise. church to the back of the church as these people praise the Lord. These who are threatened with their lives, they love God, they serve God. These are the ones who have family and friends who were all beheaded in, in Libya. This is the persecuted church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. If this is what suffering brings, then Lord Jesus, bring suffering our way that we might praise God with all of our hearts as they do. What were they singing? The translation of this is keep praising Jesus more and more. Give God honor with your songs. Call the martyrs, his heroes. Walk with a cross in front of you. And the light of the gospels is increasing. Live the joy of heavens. The darkness is defeated by love and forgiveness. He gave us enlightenment. The pain and death cannot overcome us. Tell the Lord who is victorious over his enemies in Arabic as they sang with all of their hearts. This is what suffering can do. Suffering is not meaningless or purposeless. Our authenticity, our love for God is put on trial. Do I love him and believe in him or just what he can give to me? It forces us to face our helplessness, explore new levels of dependence in God. We want pain relief, but we need God. Suffering seems to, to be God's finishing school for us. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 5 that, that suffering comes our way as God works in our lives and in our hearts. 
Not only so, he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Suffering seems to be God's finishing school. We would never be who we end up being in the absence of all that God has purposed for us along the way. If we are truthful and honest, we know that to be so. We know that God has built into us each of these experiences and has allowed suffering and trials and tests to come our way that have deepened us in our faith and have caused us to love God more, have caused us to know him more, have caused us to hold on to him more firmly and more tenaciously. And we learn from our suffering who God really is. God becomes more real and necessary every day of our lives and less, we see life as less uh, trivial and less pedestrian. Suffering also offers us no easy answers, just hard questions and the need to hurt together. We want it to go away. We all do. We, don't, we want suffering to go away. We want pain to go away. But if it can't, we need help that outstrips our personal assets. And do we realize that God has positioned the church purposefully that we might reach out to each other and help each other in time of suffering and distress and persecution and trial and testing. That's why Paul wrote to the Romans as well in Romans chapter 12 and said, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we what? Weep with those who weep. We cry with those who cry. You can offer a thousand words or you can just stand beside a hurting brother and sister and just weep with them. And I'll guarantee you every single time the weeping beside them is stronger than a thousand words you will ever give them. It's just to know I love you, I care for you, I'm going to carry your burden with you, I'm going to pray with you, I understand you're hurting and I'm hurting because I love you. And if you're hurting, I'm hurting. And the church is absolutely put together for that purpose, that we might rejoice with each other and jump for joy when God does wonderful and marvelous things, but we might grab each other and embrace one another and cry with one another when we realize that God is allowing difficulty and suffering to come into our life. And I can tell you that the strongest help I have ever received in my life is when someone just stands beside me or sits beside me and just cries because I'm crying. There's nothing in all the world that so powerfully expresses God's rich love for us in difficult times than to have brothers and sisters in the church Weep with you. Suffering requires the comfort of company, and the church is made for those moments. That's what Jesus was asking for in the Garden of Gethsemane of his disciples. Can't you just wait and pray with me for one hour? Don't you care? Can't you care enough for me in my agony and distress to be there one hour? And finally, as we transition into our time of celebrating the solution to suffering, it's at the cross. Suffering's final solution showdown was the cross, our suffering God. I hope we understand what Christ has done for us. 
there is only one solution to suffering. And that is that sin would be done away with once and for all. And that's what Christ did when he went to the cross. He bore our sins, the cause of suffering. He bore our sins on the cross of Calvary. So that by the time we get to the end of the book and read in Revelation, we come to the end in in chapter 21 and we realize that there's coming a time when there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more dying. Why? Because the old order of things is gone. Because Jesus Christ suffered and went to the cross for us that he might take care of sin once and for all so that eternity, all of eternity, would be freed from suffering and pain and trials and brokenness that this world that we live in is subject to. And so, in a few moments, we as Christ's church gather around the table of the Lord and remind ourselves of the powerful work of Christ, our suffering God, who bore the ultimate pain for us, that someday we would have it no more. And that's why the persecuted church in Egypt or Tunisia or Morocco or Mauritania or wherever praises the Lord in singing and rejoicing and waving of flags and jumping for joy because someday... All the threats and all the pain and all the sorrow and all the, puni- all the persecution will be gone. And we'll be with the Lord forever, rejoicing forever. Is anybody interested in getting rid of pain? <laughs> anybody interested in getting rid of suffering? Anybody interested in seeing persecution go away forever? Anybody interested in having no more trials, no more tests, no more tears, no more crying, no more death. Anybody interested in that? Well, then, you know, I have good news for you. There is coming a day, and it could be soon, when Jesus Christ will return and take us to be with himself, and he himself will wipe away our tears, never to return again. So if you know the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior, Would you please join me at the table of the Lord? He invites you to come there. Christ's work suffering on Calvary makes it possible for suffering to finally end. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. And he did this because he loves us so much. Our Father and our God, would you please take these words, the texts of scripture that teach us the depth of the reality and nature of your work in suffering for us and through us, O God, that we might learn to number our days and count the reality and nature of our great God who deepens us because he loves us. Thank you that you love us, Lord. Now we ask that we might truly from our hearts celebrate 
the richness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that we might live abundantly forever. Thank you, Jesus, in Christ's name, amen. Let me conclude our time this morning together with the scriptures as a benediction. I'd ask you to close your eyes and just listen to what I read to you. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen.